and welcome to the first in a mini-series on Tudor Queens. I'm Emily. And I'm Gemma. As Emily said, this is going to be a mini-series of four, possibly five podcasts looking at Tudor Queens, starting today with Lady Jane Grey. Then in February, I will be looking at Mary I. Then in March and April, I'll be looking at Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth I. This was originally meant to be one podcast but we very quickly realized that you'd end up with a four-hour podcast and really who has time for that plus we don't have time for the editing of a four-hour podcast so before we get into the first podcast of 2022 we just wanted to take the time to say thank you for your support okay so why are you starting with jane gray was she actually a queen I mean, you have a point there. There are some who argue that because she was never crowned, Jane shouldn't be considered a queen, but neither Edward V nor Edward VII were ever crowned, but both are considered kings. Furthermore, as we will see throughout history, Jane's picked up the title the Nine Days Queen, but this too is incorrect. Jane was acknowledged as queen by the Council of the Realm immediately after Edward VI's death on the 6th of July, just wasn't made public until the 10th of July. As such, Jane was Queen of England for 13 whole days. Okay, I'm convinced. So tell us about Jane. Jane's date of birth is unknown. The traditional view was that she was born in October 1537. However, recent research suggests that she was born sometime between May 1536 and February 1537, which matches with her being, quote, in her 17th year at the time of her execution. Jane was the eldest daughter of Henry Grey, first Duke of Suffolk, and his wife Frances, the eldest daughter of Henry VIII's younger sister Mary. This made Jane and her two younger sisters, Catherine and Mary, the grandnieces of Henry VIII and first cousins once removed to Edward VI, Mary I and Elizabeth I. What was her childhood like? Owing to her family's position, Jane received an excellent humanist education and earned, quote, a reputation as one of the most learned young women of her day. She was also a committed Protestant. Sometime around February 1547, Jane went to live in the household of Thomas Seymour and Henry VIII's widow, Catherine Parr. She was an attendant to Catherine until her death in childbirth in September 1548, and Jane acted as chief mourner at her funeral. After Catherine's death, Jane was made a ward of Thomas, who tried and failed to arrange a marriage between Jane and King Edward VI. Nothing came of it, and after Thomas was beheaded for treason in 1549, Jane returned to her parents' home at Bradgate. I mean, she's got some family pedigree there, really, isn't she? Oh, yeah, she's definitely well-connected. Yeah, but I can imagine that made her life extremely difficult. The, The thing is, as we've seen time and time again, Jane was, although high-born Jane was a girl so all really was expected of her was an advantageous marriage so the the details of her childhood have been lost to history you know even like down to her date and place of birth because she was a girl who wasn't you know she was never expected to take the throne so nobody really bothered no I think her importance would have been whenever she was married just yes. generally because she would have made a connection for her family so how did she end up in the line of succession I mean 
we kind of know that there was two people that were meant to be ahead of her. By the end of 1546, it became clear that Henry VIII was not going to live much longer. And so his attention turned to who would succeed him. On the 30th of December, he dictated his will. Now, although he was married six times, he only had three legitimate children, two girls, Mary and Elizabeth, and a boy, Edward. His new will made it clear that, quote, his son, Prince Edward, was to be his undoubted successor, followed by his two daughters, who remained legally illegitimate, any heirs that they might produce. His thoughts then turned to the alternative, should none of his children have heirs of their own. He discounted the Scottish line and instead, quote, nominated the heirs of his younger sister, Mary, Duchess of Suffolk, and one time Queen of France. Now, Mary's oldest surviving child would have been Jane's mother, Lady Frances. However, Henry overlooks her and decreed that, quote, the imperial crown shall wholly remain and come to the heirs of the body of Lady Frances, our niece, eldest daughter to our late sister, the French queen, lawfully begotten. And with this line, he overlooks Frances in favour of her daughters. So why not name Frances? It's not really a satisfactory explanation for this, at least not one I could find. I mean, there isn't any evidence to suggest that the relationship between Henry and Francis or her sister Eleanor, who was also overlooked, was anything other than amicable and even fond. That said, there are a few possible ex explanations. First, Henry simply believed that at least one of his children would produce children, thus securing the Tudor dynasty. Failing that, at 29, he may have believed that it was possible for Francis to produce sons who would naturally come before their mother in the line of succession. Lastly, it suggested that Henry knew if Francis was to succeed, if Francis was to ascend to the throne, then ultimate power would be invested in her husband, Henry Grey, who the king did not appear to have a high opinion of. What made people think that Henry didn't like Henry Grey? Well, throughout Henry's reign, he never awarded Henry any form of office. And when the king was making appointments to the Regency Council, Edward, Henry was noticeably missing. With all of that said, in the small hours of the morning on the 28th of January, 1547, Henry VIII died, making his nine-year-old son Edward king. I mean, it makes it sound like Henry really knew that he needed to be careful about who he appointed to help his son. I know, kind of from my research, from my podcast, that Thomas Seymour was also very much not included on that council. When you look at Henry's reign, it's very clear who was in favour and who wasn't. Mm -hmm. And Henry Grey never seemed to be in favour with the king. Yeah. Of course, that is all speculation. One of those unsolved mysteries. So you said that Jane didn't marry the king, but who did she marry? Well, after the execution of Thomas Seymour, a new leader emerged at court, John Dudley, Earl of Warwick. In April 1553, he suggested that Jane should marry his son Dudley. And by the 28th of April, Jane and Dudley were betrothed, quote, with the consent and approval of the king and his council. Now, neither Francis nor Jane were happy with this impending marriage, especially as Dudley was a fourth son. Although unhappy, plans for the wedding went 
ahead with no time to lose. The wedding was set the 25th of May. It was to be a triple wedding alongside Jane and Dudley. His sister Catherine was to marry Henry Hastings and Jane's sister Catherine was to marry Lord Herbert. The three couples married at Durham Palace and although he'd given his blessing and even uh, sent his tailor to provide wedding outfits, King Edward was unable to attend because of his ill health. After the ceremony, the guests enjoyed a lavish feast. However, their delight soon turned to distress because, quote, one of the cooks accidentally plucked one leaf for another while preparing a hot salad dish, giving Dudley and many other guests severe food poisoning that some were still suffering issues with a month later. I mean, given the fact that Jane clearly didn't want any part of the marriage, she must have been quite relieved that her new husband was in no state to uh, consummate them. Well, it already been agreed that their marriage would not be consummated immediately. According to the imperial ambassador, the reason for this was, quote, because of their tender age. However, both Jane and Guildford were over the age of consent, which the church at the time stated was 12 for girls and 14 for boys. Therefore, it seems more likely there was another reason for the delay. Nicola Tallis suggests that it was to prevent the marriage from being, quote, binding before the events of the immediate future became clearer. After all, King Edward had not yet named Jane as his heir. Jane does eventually become his named heir. So how does that come about? How does he end up skipping his siblings? Well, the king had been ill for some time, but by 1553, it was clear he was not going to recover. So he wrote his will in which he named, quote, his Protestant cousin, Lady Jane, and her heirs, male as his successors, making Jane next in line for the throne. Okay, but Mary and Elizabeth are still alive, so how's he getting around that? Although both Mary and Elizabeth had been named illegitimate during the reign of their father, Henry VIII, the Third Succession Act restored them. But remember... He had Lord Protector John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, whispering in his ear to ensure his daughter-in-law, Jane, was named heir, thus putting her on the throne as his puppet. That said, it was rather easy for him to convince Edward to discount Mary on account of her devout Catholic faith, especially as Jane, by contrast, was a committed Protestant and would, quote, support the Reformed Church of England whose foundation Edward had laid. As for Elizabeth, Edward was said to have been initially more reluctant to exclude her, given that her place in the line of succession had been restored. However, he quickly realised that he could not exclude Mary but name Elizabeth, so he excluded them both. Although overlooked in Henry VIII's will, Frances had a stronger claim than her daughter. So prompted by Northumberland, who realised that she wouldn't be as easy to control as Jane, Frances travelled to, to Greenwich Palace and, quote, renounced her right in the presence of the dying king. As such, Edward drew up his device for succession, naming Janie's heir. For it to stand, however, it needed the support of his council, some of which were doubtful in the legitimacy as Henry VIII's act of succession had been passed in Parliament and considered, quote, Edward's attempt to overturn it with a new will was as technically illegal, Edward was said to be furious and demanded their obedience in the matter. Of course, they weren't going to say no to the king. And so on the 21st of June, 1553, the changes were ratified. Now, despite going along with the king, 
Many on the council were uneasy as their loyalties were torn. Whilst alive, they obviously owed them to the king, but they were, quote, full of foreboding for the future. And this was the first crack in Northumberland's plan. Edward died on the 6th of July, 1553, but his death was not announced to the public for another four days. With Edward dead and his order of, order of succession signed, Northumberland took the next step in his plan and sent messages to Mary and Elizabeth, telling them to rush their brother's deathbed to say their farewell. Elizabeth, perhaps suspecting foul play, claimed to be too sick to travel. Mary, however, rushed towards London, unaware that a party of armed men under Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, were on their way to attempt to capture her. They were unsuccessful, and this became the second crack in Dudley's plan. Where was Jane while all of these chess pieces had kind of been moved on a board? Did she have any idea that she was going to be named Queen next? Well, after her wedding, she remained with her parents for a brief time before taking up residence with her husband and his family at Durham Palace. She was so afraid of her father-in-law that it said her hair began falling out and her skin and fingernails peeling. She even became convinced that he was trying to poison her because she was unaware that he needed her alive for his plot to succeed. The precise date she learned she was the heir to the throne is unknown, but it was likely sometime in June, and according to some sources, she actually fainted when told. Jane was informed of Edward's death on the 9th of July and accepted the crown with great reluctance. She was taken to the Tower of London and officially proclaimed Queen of England, France and Ireland. Northumberland very quickly learned that Jane was not as easy to control as he had anticipated. He had always intended for his son to be crowned alongside Jane. However, she refused to name her husband Dudley as king and instead planned to make him the Duke of Clarence upon her coronation. When she informed Guildford of this, he and their parents were infuriated and his mother advised him to, quote, shun Jane's bed in an attempt to bring her to heel a threat that had very little impact on Jane's decision. I mean, that kind of sounds like a reward rather than yeah. a punishment, considering the family. I mean, it sounds like she didn't really want the crown. Like it was a lot, it was a lot of responsibility. But then when she was given it and she kind of had no choice, she became very aware of the manipulation that was going on and was kind of trying to do her best to not allow it to happen. She very much didn't want the crown. Like, I think even then she understood that if this went wrong, it was going to go badly. And also she was quite fond of Mary and Elizabeth. They all seemed to have had quite a good relationship. Yeah. Even though her and Mary disagreed on, on faith, they seem to have been fond of each other. The same could be said about Edward, though, and Mary. While they, you know, were disagreeing in public about religion, they were still family. They were still close behind closed doors. And mm. that's something as well with Jane, if I'm right, you know, she had the same faith as Edward. And so, you know, she was seeing it as a way to be able to bring that faith to the country and keep that faith within the country. None of the ambition was on her part, no. but I think all of the people around her underestimated her. 
they thought she was going to be easy to control. Never underestimate a Tudor woman. So, I mean, you know, her in-laws sound like they've got plans coming together. So how do things go wrong? I mean, she's been proclaimed queen. Unbeknown to the council, Mary had actually heard of Edward's death and she sent a message with one simple demand, quote, they should belatedly renounce Jane, falsely styled queen, and recognise and welcome herself as the undoubted liege lady. Furthermore, the people had made it clear that their support was with Mary, not Jane. Although extremely reluctant to do so, Northumberland was forced to set out from the Tower of London on the 14th of July to try and capture Mary himself because all other attempts had failed. This was the final crack in his plot and where things completely fell apart. With Northumberland gone, the Privy Council very quickly switched their allegiance from Jane to Mary, proclaiming Mary Queen in London on the 19th of July. In fact, it was Jane's uncle, the Earl of Arran, who first broached the subject of abandoning Jane's cause and, quote, after a moving speech, most of the councils agreed, quote, one by one, each man in turn took up his pen and signed his name to Mary's proclamation. All promises to the dead King Edward were forgotten. All promises to Queen Jane cast aside. And what happened next? Well, the councillors were determined to speak to Henry Gray in person, so travelled the short distance to the tower where they informed him of their decision. It was then left to him to tell his daughter she was no longer queen. Quite how it happened is unclear, but according to the imperial ambassador, he approached Jane while she was at dinner with Guildford and her attendants, and unable to speak, he, quote, tore down the symbol of royal majesty, ripping the golden silk as it fell to the floor and after finding his voice, informed her she was no longer queen. How did Jane take the news? Well, she was said to be graceful, and, I mean, given her reluctance to be queen, maybe she even felt a little relief. Her only question was to ask her father if she could go home now. Of course she didn't, but that didn't mean her parents would stay with her and comfort her. They fled that night, leaving their daughter to, quote, face Mary's angry troops and the rightful queen by herself. It didn't take Mary's forces long to catch up with him, however, and Henry was arrested and returned to the tower on the 28th of July. Realising the task of saving her family fell to her, Francis immediately set off to beg the Queen for mercy in person. As cousins, the two had once been close, so Mary was more than happy to meet her in the royal apartments at Beaulieu. Francis told Mary that she had come to, quote, intercede for her most unfortunate husband. I went on to tell the Queen that Henry was not to blame, but that Northumberland was responsible for it all, and she prayed her husband would be freed from the tower where he was getting sicker. Mary agreed, but insisted he remain under house arrest at the Charter House. Did Francis um, ask for Jane to be freed? There are no sources to suggest that she spoke to Mary about Jane during that meeting. So what happened to Jane? Well, on the 3rd of August, Mary made her way into London and took possession of her kingdom. That same evening, members of the guard arrived and ordered the tower guards to ensure Jane remained there as a prisoner. Jane and Guildford were separated. She was held in the house of the gentleman jailer Nathaniel Partridge on Tower Green, whilst Guildford was held in the Bewcamp Tower. Jane wrote to Mary expressing her sorrow for her part in the plot, but making it clear that she never desired or wanted the crown. By the 13th of August, it seemed clear that Mary had received Jane's letter and that she had accepted her versions of events. 
Whilst many whispered in her ear that Jane should die, Mary, quote, conscious of her familial bonds and Jane's tender age could not bring herself to execute her cousin. It seemed Jane's life was safe. Jane's father-in-law, Northumberland, had been captured, tried, found guilty, and despite converting to Catholicism in an attempt to save his life, was executed on the 22nd of August on the exact same scaffold his father had been executed on 45 years to the day before him. So was Jane then released? No, Jane Guildford, two of his brothers and former Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, were charged with high treason. The trial was held on the 13th of November, 1553, at the Guildhall in the city of London. All were found guilty and sentenced to death. The men were sentenced to be hung, drawn and quartered. Was Jane was sentenced to, quote, be burned alive on Tower Hill or beheaded as the Queen pleases as was the traditional English punishment for treason committed by a woman at the time. So Mary really wasn't going to spare her then? Well, although sentenced to death, no date had been set, Mary had other things on her mind, such as marriage and religious reform. I mean, at the age of 37, Mary was considered, quote, old to be making her first marriage, especially as she was eager to produce children. So I guess just having the sentence there was kind of helping mary to you know solidify her place as queen she didn't have to kill her she already had the the trial was done yeah i guess jane was kind of out of sight out of mind Mm -hmm. like mary hated northumberland so she was more than happy to accept that he was the one who who did it all yeah and he'd been taken care of but considering his plot it's definitely got what he deserved so, I mean, all in all, it was looking good for Jane. It was, and then men. In January 1554, Thomas Wyatt the Younger led a failed uprising against Queen Mary's plan to marry Philip of Spain. Henry and two of his brothers joined the rebellion, and whilst Wyatt intended to place Elizabeth on the throne, Henry took up arms and made the fatal cry for Queen Jane, thus sealing his daughter's fate. When the rebellion failed, Henry and his brothers were arrested, and taken to the Tower of London. Jane must have known that with her father's arrest, any hope she had of freedom was gone. Mary came to the realisation that as long as Jane lived, she could become, quote, a focal point for future dissenters, and having done all she could to avoid executing Jane, she could do no more, and the death sentence handed to Jane at the Guildhall would have to become a reality. How did Jane take the news? It was unclear precisely when Mary made this decision, but Jane was probably informed of the Queen's decision on the 7th of February, with her execution set for the 9th of February, but quite how she took it, we just don't know. There's no clear source on that. I always hate when you read these stories where these women literally had no control over their own lives. They were pawns in a man's game for power. And then they paid the ultimate price for it. Yeah. I mean, as we'll see next month, Mary I did some really messed up things, especially when it came to, like, her persecution of anyone who wasn't Catholic. Mm -hmm. But she really did try to save Jane. Yeah. And I think it's so sad that I'm not necessarily saying Mary was a good monarch, 
because they've been better. But so often we kind of think of her as killing her cousin and, and taking glee in it. Yeah. And it, it really wasn't. Mary knew how the game was played. So did Elizabeth. Yeah, I was going to say both, the same. They both watched their mothers. In, in, in different ways, both of their mothers were chewed up and spat out by the courts, by, by the court. So they both knew how the game worked and they both knew how it was rigged against women. And you can see that she really didn't want to execute Jane. And I think as well, um, like with Elizabeth, I, she didn't necessarily want to execute Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah. Even though they're, you know, they're some of the biggest executions we know about two queens. Mm-hmm. is setting them against two queens almost. Yeah. And family. And family. So, I mean... You know, Mary clearly didn't want to have to do this. So, and you said that she was trying to save her. Did she try and do something else before the final execution? So though Mary had signed Jane's death warrant, she felt uneasy and made a desperate attempt to save Jane's immortal soul. Now, some sources suggest she was just trying to save Jane's soul. And some suggest that she was trying to find another way to save Jane's life. And I read both sources and I, I wasn't sure which is true. So I'm putting it out there that there are sources that say both. But anyway, Mary sent her own confessor, Father Feckenham, to the tower to convince Jane to, to convert to Catholicism. Now, I think the sources that suggest she was trying to save Jane's life kind of imply that had Jane converted, Mary could have sent her off to a nunnery somewhere. Um whereas other sources suggest she was just trying to save her soul and she believed that only Catholics would get into heaven, if that makes sense. Anyway, he and Jane first met on the 8th of February. For Jane, the arrival of a visitor must have been provided a mixture of great relief at having somebody to talk to and impatience when she was informed of the reason he was there. Jane was devoted to her faith and had no intention of converting. But Feckenham didn't want to fail the Queen and was sure with more time he could persuade Jane to convert. Mary was, of course, delighted by this and agreed to postpone both Jane and Guildford's execution by three days. When he told Jane the news, rather than be relieved, Jane was upset as she had, quote, resigned herself to her fate. Despite being saddened by his failure, Feckenham was impressed by her fortitude And Jane too came to respect him and actually asked him to stay with her to the end, which he promised he would do. So in the end, her execution went ahead. Yes. On the 11th of February, Guildford, who had also refused to convert to Catholicism, requested a final meeting with his wife on the eve of the execution. However, Jane declined, saying, quote, if their meeting could have been a means of consolation to their souls, she would have been very glad to see him but as their meeting would only tend to increase their misery and pain it was better to put it off for the time being as they would meet shortly elsewhere and live bound by indissoluble ties what happened on the day of her execution jane and guildford's executions were scheduled for the 12th of February, 1554 guildford was to die first he was taken from his rooms and led to the public execution place at tower hill where he was beheaded he was just 17 and as much porn as Jane was, he was actually beheaded on the same scaffold as his father and grandfather. Somebody somewhere messed up 
or perhaps it was spite, but Jane actually saw Guildford's corpse when it was brought back into the tower. And it was at this moment that her composure slipped. She was said to have cried out, oh, Guildford, oh, Guildford. However, she was able to pull herself back together and made her way to the recently erected scaffold, determined not to show any fear as she faced the crowd and gave her final speech, which ended with the line, quote, and now, good people, while I am alive, I pray you assist me with your prayers. Kneeling down, she opened her prayer book, and whilst there were several people on the scaffold, it was actually Feckenham who had remained true to his promise to be there, and she asked him, shall I read this psalm? And he answered in the affirmative, so she recited Psalm 51 in English. When she finished, Jane stood up and handed her gloves and handkerchief to Mistress Tilney, who, along with Mistress Ellen, helped her take off her dress and fix her hair. Before she could fix a handkerchief over her eyes, the executioner asked for her forgiveness, which she gave, saying, quote, I pray you dispatch me quickly. Kneeling, she tied the handkerchief over her eyes and now blind, felt for the block with her hands. When she couldn't feel it, she again lost her composure and desperately cried out, what shall I do? What shall I do? Where is it? Thomas Bridges stepped forward and guided her hands to rest on the wooden block, allowing her to restore her composure so she could, quote, make a courageous end. After crying out, quote, Lord Jesus, into thy hands I commend my spirit, the executioner swung the axe, ending her life in one blow. Her body remained laying on the blood-soaked scaffold for several hours before it was taken for burial in the chapel of St Peter and Vicula. Do we know exactly where she's buried then? precise location of her grave is unclear. Presumably, she was laid to rest beside her husband, but no memorial was ever erected for her. A story later emerged that Jane's body was secretly removed from the tower and taken to Bradgate Park, where it was interned in the parish church. This is almost certainly fiction, as there's no evidence to support it. Today, a slab at the foot of the chancel marks her supposed resting place. So what happened to the rest of her family? Jane's father, the Duke of Suffolk, was executed on the 23rd of February 1554. You have to wonder how he felt, because some suggest he could see Jane walking to the scaffold from where he was held in the tower. But you, you have to wonder if he felt any kind of guilt or remorse. Her mother was fully pardoned by Mary, and two weeks after her husband's execution, married Master of the Horse and Chamberlain Adrian Stokes, and she died in 1559. I mean, it sounds so callous that she married someone else within two weeks, but I think we have to remember that if you weren't married at this point, you know, you were going to be struggling, and her husband had been named, you know, as someone having committed treason, and her daughter, so she was going to need good connections as quick as possible for the rest of her family. Also, by marrying a commoner, mm -hmm. which she did, she kind of, I guess, removes any chance of her or any future as being used as a puppet to get onto the throne. Yeah. She almost took herself off the board by, by doing that. Like, I think from Jane's story, reading it, you can see how smart Frances was. She was obviously clued in. Yeah. And she was obviously brave. I mean, she could have done more to advocate for her daughter. But, you know, she went straight to Mary and convinced Mary to release her husband 
two house to race, but still quite an amazing feat. He literally just usurped throne. I think as well, you have to remember, she had two other daughters that she needed to protect. It could have swung the other way and the entire family could have been killed. Definitely. Like she, Francis did pretty well at playing the game. It still makes me feel bad for Jane though, because she was literally just a pawn start to finish. Yeah. And the minute that the wind changed, everyone abandoned her. Yeah, I mean, her parents didn't even stay with her in the tower to await, await Mary's arrival. Like, they could have taken her with them. Yeah. Jane's story, though, is just, it's just sad. Like, mm-hmm. it almost, in places, feels like the person who had the most care about Jane's survival was Mary. Yeah. In, in many respects. But I guess as well. Mary was very aware of women being used like pawns. Like you said, she'd watched all of the games at court. She'd been dropped from her father's standing like that because of her marriage, you know. She was very aware what the game was. So she probably had a lot more feeling towards, you know, what Jane was going through. Definitely. And I guess also, like, you have to wonder if there was a part of Mary's brain that kind of thought, you know, if a few things had gone differently, it could well be Mary that was the one languishing in the tower and Jane on the throne. Definitely. Because if if Mary had been captured by Northumberland's forces at any point before Northumberland left, it would have been very different because the council wouldn't have gone against Northumberland if he'd been there, or it's very unlikely they would. Mm-hmm. It makes you wonder if Jane would have signed a warrant for Mary's death. I don't know. She would because have faced Mary... the exact same issue. That, that's what I was just about to say, maybe even worse still, because mm-hmm. obviously Mary had Spanish support because of her mother. Yeah. And she had the support of the papacy, which obviously, especially then, that was a big powerhouse. Mm-hmm. So if anything, Jane would have been under more pressure to eliminate the threat of Mary than Mary was to eliminate the threat of Jane. Yeah. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things we should remember is Jane was just 17 when she was executed. So young, to have such composure. Just children, you know, even Guildford, when you're reading the sources, he comes across as spoiled and a bit of a, a bit of a entitled brat. But he was just 17 and he was as much a pawn as Jane was. He couldn't say no to his father. It, who, it didn't work that way. Who also was going to give up the chance of being a king well that too yeah you know that's the ultimate power grab but jane was used by men to help them raise their positions to quote nicola tallis jane was quote a spirited girl who demonstrated character passion talent and strength and deserves to be remembered as such so next one as i said i'll be looking into mary the first and i didn't at all pick her because of all of the religious reforms not at all not at all and then in march and april emily as she said will be looking at mary queen of scots and elizabeth I. and then we might do like a short podcast just kind of to tie it all together and sum up our thoughts but we're not 100 percent sure about that yeah there's a lot to unpack so as always take care of yourselves and each other